Hi, it's Kelly Edwards and we're taking a break and getting ready for season two of Let's Go Together. But we wanted to share an episode from another podcast that we love. Here is Homemade, featuring Marcus Samuelson discussing growing up in Sweden, the importance of black cooks in American food history, and how to support black chefs in your community. Enjoy. Absolutely. But first of all, my grandmother was completely in favor of child labor. I have to say that <laughs> first off. So like if you, you know, when you're seven or eight or ten or whatever, if me and my sister went to my grandmother, it was full with awareness of we working. I never remember playing with my grandmother or my grandfather. It was full on work. I set the bike, I ran up the 15 stairs and I was sweaty because I was probably bike racing with my sisters. But once you entered, you were actively working. But I also was there because you always got great food. Welcome to Homemade from All Recipes. I'm Marty Duncan. On this show, we celebrate the beloved recipes, memories, and traditions behind our favorite foods. One of the most famous dishes in Harlem all time is chicken and waffle. I'm a huge chicken and waffle fan. All right, check it out. Start with a great waffle, which we got here. Crispy, it's hot, smells fantastic. That's my guest today, Chef Marcus Samuelson. You may know him from Food Network's Chopped. He also won Top Chef Masters, which came with a $115,000 prize, which he turned around and donated to UNICEF to help provide clean water to villages in Africa. Chef Samuelson was born in Ethiopia and grew up in Sweden, where he eventually went to culinary school. He later moved to the U.S., and now he's one of America's leading voices in the food community with a television show on PBS and restaurants around the globe. His flagship restaurant, Red Rooster in Harlem, has become a comfort food mecca, and the Yardbird Fried Chicken has folks standing in line. Marcus Samuelson, welcome to Homemade. How are you? Thank you for having me. I'm so tickled to have you. Are you kidding me? Love watching your show on PBS. No passport required. I'm just so fascinated with those backstories behind all of our different cultures and the different heritage foods that are so important to different regions around America. How did it come to be? It's one of those dream shows where I can get the chance to travel this beautiful country. I mean, now it's very hard to do that show because now we can't travel as much, but pre-COVID, you know, we wanted to tell full story of how beautiful and delicious America is and the backstories around immigrants. And I think that so much of the narrative of immigrants is the false narrative pushed out. And we wanted to show something that immigrants, first of all, we are Americans. Everybody comes from a different path. And here's how we contributed. And the more you start learning about backstories, you also start thinking about your own family. Right. So in this moment where we can find relatable causes to celebrate us and our diversity in America, grab it. If you can hear a story that is different than yours, you're going to find similarities. If you can eat something that you're not familiar, but you have more understanding of it. If you can listen to music that are different than what you grew up with or you might currently listen to, take those opportunities because it's only in that discovery you really 
truly going to fully see how beautiful America is. I know music is a big influence for you. I think you've got a big boombox sculpture in your <laughs> office, don't you? I do. I do. Definitely. Music is a giant influence for me, too. Tell me what you're listening to now. Like, what's your favorite on your playlist right this minute? And I grew up in a household where, you know, my parents had a better sound system than cars. Oh, we did, too. We the, did, too. Yeah, the sound system was like, to touch my mom's Bang Olufsen, this Danish incredible sound system, you have to, like, ask for permission. I remember the day when I got a boombox in my own room and I didn't have to share it with my sisters. It was like a big day. <laughs> so now, actually, I've gone back to a lot of stuff that I grew up with in the 80s. So I listen to Prince a lot right now. Going back, there's this amazing podcast that documented how Prince did his albums in the 80s. And I needed that because this year has been so chaotic for all of us, right? So right. I want to listen to something also, how he crafted some of his best albums. And it was a, during a highly chaotic period in his life. Yet he created masterpieces and going back to his work made it calmer for him, although the outside world for him was very chaotic. So it's just been helpful to listening to, you know, the engineers and the musicians that created those albums and listening to those stories. It took you to a place of comfort and it took you to your roots. I think that's why we saw so many people rush to the store for yeast and things like that and start baking during the pandemic because people needed that sense of home, that sense of grounding, that sense of Roots, yes. you know, we're, we're going to be okay. So your Swedish roots were a big part of your farm-to-table cooking mm -hmm. background, your love of local ingredients. I was reading your book again, and that was what inspired me to ask about all these beautiful foods that you grew up, not just eating, but making with your grandmother in her kitchen, fishing with your father. Tell us a little bit about that. So me and my sister were adopted at a very early age from Ethiopia due to tuberculosis. And then we were adopted by a Swedish family. And I grew up in the city of Gothenburg, but summertime we really grew up on a little island, fishing village. And my influences besides my parents was really two. They were my drunk uncles. <laughs> they were like this beautiful, the most favorite, two favorite people in the world. I'm one, Torsten, like as a kid, you always loved him because he was always excited and happy to see you. And my grandmother, Helga, and there was a lot of poverty growing up on a fishing island. And it was also uncertainty. If nature was too harsh, you couldn't go out and fish. If it was too cold, you couldn't go out and fish. So you had to pickle and preserve. Once we caught catch, it was something very serious. My uncles were very much like joyful and telling bad jokes and constantly involved us. But once we caught something, that was serious. And then had to be brought back to the home. And it could only go in three different ways. It was either smoked afterwards or preserved in one way. You always have to give out a little bit of food to the elderly or we ate it that same day. With food, there was no jokes because they've been through these cold, long winters during the wars, Second World War, where they didn't have food for a long time, for example. Right. So when my grandmother and the food that we created at home, it was farm to table, nose to tail, way before those were terms. It was just, you, I have a much better reference of sounds and smells than anything else. You walk into my grandparents' house to the left, 
my grandfather was sitting by the radio listening to things, not really watching TV, always to the radio, commenting back to the radio, screaming at the radio if he was upset. And then you walk into my grandmother's place, which was really the kitchen, which was really 70% of the house, where there was always a stock or broth cooking, smelling in the back. There was always a bread to be made. So it was dough somewhere. Right. She was cleaning something, whether it was chicken or fish. Vegetables were everywhere. Fruits were everywhere. We either had to go out and pick it, or we had to clean it, or we had to go foraging for lingonberries or mushrooms, depending on what season it was. And then, of course, in the basement, it was the labeling of all the jars. And it could read something like lingonberries, October 1981, pickled mushrooms, September 1982. And when you had your job to bring those jars back up, you better bring the right season. And in, in Sweden at that time, you know, it's different. This food, this basement was kept in if the Russians would come, which was really real. Yes. Right? This was real. It was not something that, uh, you know, you almost can laugh at today. But no, this was happening. This real cold for fear. Yes. So that's how I grew up with fresh food. Our steak was cod or halibut. Our second day meal was very often a fish soup or fish with fish dumplings. The meat that we had was meatballs, was grounded meat. And if we ever had steak... It was pork. I want to know about fish dumplings. What was that mm-hmm. like? Tell me about that. Oh, oh, fabulous. So it was really scraps of cod or halibut or whatever fish that we had back that you had to, after cleaning the cod, you scrape it and you get all that. You get this bucket of beautiful fish meat that in a restaurant today would be used for tatars or be used for other treatments. And that with a little bit of butter or some type of fat get mixed up, very often filled with breadcrumbs. So eventually the way someone makes meatballs, it's the same type of structure, a little bit of onion, a little bit of breadcrumbs, a little bit of that farce meat, and you roll it, and you could either boil them or you fry them. Like So dumplings, essentially. Dumplings, exactly. And then they were served with, we always had potatoes. They very often got sweetened with an apple Ah. or a pear. And that got mashed. Right. My grandmother maybe had a carrot ready or horseradish that we grinded in. And that would go in the mashed potatoes. That goes in the mash, right? Oh, that sounds good. Oh, it's delicious. And then she made the gravy from where we seared the fish, the dumplings, very often with pickle juice from the cucumber. She took the pickle juice, milk or cream, whatever she had, thickened that up with a little bit of flour. In her later days when she got hip, she even added soy into that. That came in the later days. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Because this is what she's seen on TV. Yeah, she was you know? doing fusion yeah. cooking before there was fusion cooking. Way before. Way before. I think all of our ancestors, you know, they did what they had to do. And, you know, wanted to be creative, too, in the kitchen, just like we are, where they wanted to try something a little bit different, a little bit unique. I read one time that you said one of the things that takes you back immediately was making apple jam and pickles mm-hmm. with your grandmother. Yeah. So apple jam, could we make that? Oh, absolutely. But first of all, my grandmother was completely in favor of child labor. I have to say that <laughs> first out. So like if you, you know, when you're seven or eight or 10 or whatever, if me and my sister went to my grandmother, it was full with awareness of we working. 
I never remember playing with my grandmother or my grandfather. It was full-on work. I set the bike, I ran up the 15 stairs, and I was sweaty because I was probably bike racing with my sisters. But once you entered, you were actively working. So it wasn't a place where I brought my friends necessarily, but I also was there because you always got great food. Oh yeah. But also the love and the warmth that my grandmother was talking. She was constantly talking to us. So the Apple Jam, first of all, Apple Jam does not get created by apples that are still on the tree. Apple jam get created by all the fruit that fell down and would get kind of rougher and beaten up because the good fruit you can bring to a market and sell. So all the fallen fruit, that's how we made the apple jam. Very often mixed, it could be plums, it could be pears in that apple jam as well. You're listening to Homemade. We'll be right back after the break. Hey everyone, I'm Sid Evans, Editor-in-Chief of Southern Living and host of Biscuits and Jam. Since 2020, I've been interviewing musicians, chefs, authors, and other Southern icons about their family traditions, their faith, their favorite meals, and of course, what it means to be Southern. And I'm excited to announce Season 5 of our award-winning podcast. Join me every Tuesday for new conversations with some of the most interesting and influential Southerners around. Be sure to follow Biscuits and Jam where Wherever you get your podcasts. You can also find us online at southernliving.com slash biscuits and jam. I'm Marty Duncan, and my guest on Homemade Today is Chef Marcus Samuelson. How important do you think it is to get kids cooking now, like you did with your grandmother? You know, I think that in many ways we have all the tools in front of us, right? This pandemic made us closer to cook and buy ingredients so we can cook versus buying the finished product. When I travel the country or when I speak to families, the kids are very often the ones that brings them to food today because through YouTube or through Food Network or through whatever magazines, kids are aware. So I do think in one way, kids have more access and are more interested in food than ever. But also you have to realize that as food and kids goes, it's also a stare image of how America is divided. You have 5 million American kids that goes to bed every day with food insecurities. So when you think about haves and haves not, Food insecurities for kids is really something that we have to do a better job at. I agree. It's something that we can really take away, and we should, and we need to focus on it more. Those numbers are staggering, and sometimes if kids don't go to school like we didn't during the pandemic, those kids don't have food. So I think you're absolutely right, and I appreciate and applaud all that you're doing to try to bring awareness to the food insecurities. And it's not just in the big cities. Mm -hmm. It's everywhere. It's all across America. But everybody can do something, and that's the key, right? If you are a grower and you bring in kids once a week to show them how to grow vegetables, for example, something that happened during the pandemic in my neighborhood was that all the parents got together and said, hey, how do we create a a summer and some sense of normalcy for our kids. And 
every parents are working with something so everybody can contribute. So it was my wife and I, we cooked. We did coasted cooking classes, for example. Another parent was a drummer, so he did Haitian drum classes. Another parent is a creative teacher in terms of drawings and paintings, so they did that. So there is a way for communities collectively to come together. That's wonderful. So everyone can't write a check. So it's about how do we, as local communities, take our neighborhoods back and create some level of normalcy. And you have to kind of like constantly acknowledge your privilege, question yourself, how can you do more? Food insecurity is across this beautiful nation. And it's something that we can really, really do a better job on. I have three cookbooks that I have done. They're local to my home state of Alabama, and I did it to raise awareness of our local restaurants. Beautiful. I love doing it because I got to meet everybody and hear everybody's stories, right? I had an African-American photographer with me for the whole 5,000 miles around the state, and we were discussing some of these issues, and she said, I think what we need to do is do more of inviting everybody to our table. Yes. She goes, because it's at the table where everybody can agree about food. But it's also about if we eat and if we learn about each other, there's also an opportunity to learn similarities. Like through a call like this, I found out that you were adopted and I'm adopted. So we shared that. The fact that your father lived in 17 different foster homes. I mean, that by itself, how was the eighth one versus the 12th one? You know what I mean? The sense of lost hope, security he must have felt when he went from home to home. So... All of our stories are very unique as Americans. And point of writing The Rise was that as black people, so goes American food. We contributed, we came to this land completely to work on the land and to to serve in a horrible way. But our food traditions are still here. And how do you aspire and how do you acknowledge and how do you write us back into American food history? and Wherever you are on this matter, whether you're not African-American or, there is a learning opportunity here. How can I support black chefs in my community? Well, you can order in, you can go to those restaurants, you can seek them out. How can I be an ally? Well, if you work in media, you can upload them on your platform. If you are great at technology, maybe you go and volunteer and help them with, to build their website, etc. So again, as communities, as people that we care about this country, if we want a more equality in our beautiful food community, then there is a role for everybody. And part of the rise was to make sure that the chefs that we do deep dive in are not just in New York or L.A. or something like that. These are chefs everywhere. So it's important to say, like, hey, locally, I can do that. Like someone lives close to Birmingham or someone lives close to Savannah, okay, we can go and support Gray and Miss Mashama Bailey or whatever it might be. So chefs, people of colors that work in our industry are everywhere. So just do a little Google search, figure out how you can support it because it's America's food. Well, what we're talking about, for those of you who don't know, Marcus has a new book out and it is called The Rise, Black Cooks and the Soul of American Food. What people need to know about this book, it's 150 recipes with chefs, writers, activists, and the stories. They're inspirational stories of where these recipes and this food came from and how they came to be. What inspired you to do this book? It's so timely. I have a feeling it had something to do with the time we're in, but I know it took you a long time 
to write it. So it must have been something on your heart for a long time. This book took four years to write. As a chef that has the luxury and privilege to be able to publish, you have to acknowledge that. I think a lot about what should my next book be about because that privilege of being able to publish is not something that everybody has. Right. So after I was done with the Red Rooster Cookbook, which really talks about our restaurant and the narrative of the restaurant, I felt like, you know what? Our path is so unique. A lot of black chefs have done the anonymous labor behind the scenes. And so many craft people in the industry, like I'll bring one sample, like Nearest Green. He is the one that came up with a recipe for Jack Daniels. And he wasn't awarded a dime for that. I mean, that's probably the most famous brown spirit in the world, for example. So very often are we written out, whether it was from ownership or history of our journey, and it changes things. And I thought about chefs like Miss Leah Chase, that is really like a hero to me. Oh, yes. The godmother of yes. Southern food. Yes. But Miss Leah is unique, and everybody doesn't have the strength and the whereabouts that she had, but she's someone that's been in our community since the 40s, and she was both an activist and an advocate for black voices. But there's also the young ones in the book, like Patricia in our book. She's Dominican, and she's 18 years old. And I wanted to write this book for her generation. If you're just coming into our industry, you should know that you are part of a lineage of incredible contributor to American food. And I also wanted to have, if you're not black, a guidebook of saying our food, how American food came to be, is really a tapestry just like America. Exactly. But you have to look at it and you, as the contribution to what African Americans have contributed. And as we move on, as we are a nation of immigrants, being Ethiopian, I have one narrative, being Haitian, being Jamaican-American, we all come to blackness in a vastly different way. And if you have context to this, you're going to eat better, you're going to make more conscious decisions. In a way, same way as we learned about music. If you're going to listen to gospel on a Sunday, you know where to go. If you want to listen to some rock and roll, if you want to listen to some hip-hop, these are all buckets that are clear identified for you. And it would be absurd to write black people out of American music. Same goes with our food. So people need context. They need to know our history. And it's America's history. It definitely is. You can read it. You can cook with it. You can invite your friends. Food will be part of what's going to bring us back to the table as a nation. Agreed. Music is key. Food is so important in this process. When you start to break bread with people that may or may not share your journey, it's really powerful, right? It truly is. And once you start to know about a person and their culture that is very different than yours, it changes everything. Marcus, have you ever watched the documentary Muscle Shoals? Of course. I know Muscle Shoals. I love it. Okay. I want to invite you, if you ever get down this way again, meet me in Muscle Shoals. We'll go to the studios and walk those hallowed halls of Wilson Pickett and all those guys. You know, I love that story from the documentary that Rick Hall tells. They would go to have lunch and they would have all these black musicians and the white guys hanging out, breaking bread together. They said they'd get a lot of stares, but when they showed up with Dwayne Allman, the hippie with long hair, he said, they're like, that was much worse, much, much, <laughs> much worse. Yeah. But he, he talks about how the music brought 
all those cultures and different people together at a time where America was at its worst in terms of race relations. And so many incredible albums were recorded, Aretha recorded there. Yes, she did. So many amazing albums comes out of that studio. So it just shows you if you have a point of view and if you're really good, people will come to you. I mean, the Rolling Stones had to fly all the way to Muscle Shows (laughs) just to get, get the sound right. All right. Well, talking about the pandemic, it makes me want to ask you, how's it going now? We're six months in. Tell us what's going on in New York and in Harlem specifically and with your restaurants. Thank you for asking. I think that I'm cautiously optimistic. The restaurant was really closed and turned into a community kitchen. And we've been serving over 250,000 meals for the neediest and for the first responders, which was very important work for us to do during the pandemic. And I'm really proud of everyone that came to support. And Jose Andres started World Central Kitchen, and this has made a big difference. But then the restaurant also was closed for regular guests because it was just wasn't safe enough. So in the midsummer, we started opening our patio back up. We built a bigger patio, and as of this week, we're going to be able to serve for 25% indoor dining. It's not a lot, but it's a beginning. And what's been great in New York is everyone feels, community-wise, that we're on the same page in terms of people wear masks, people try to avoid big crowds. Like these four or five things that we can do that we don't have to argue about so much is happening in New York at least. Like washing hands is a given, but you know, wearing masks, avoiding big crowds, right? So for us then to set up tables that are social distance, it's difficult for the restaurant, but it's what we have to do. I don't think I've ever been prouder of us as a community than during this time for the work that we're doing as a restaurant, but also for the, all the people that are out there trying to come up with community work to help the neediest. We are by no means out of this. We're about to go into a much colder season, so I, it makes me nervous. But I also think a lot of good signs of people working together. The collectiveness of local community work, this is the best I've seen it. So in the worst of time, you also see the best in people, and that's been really encouraging. I think that gives everybody hope. To hear you say that gives everybody yeah. hope because it, you know, a lot of what happens starts in New York and trickles out to the rest of the country. Mm-hmm. So I think all of us can take some inspiration from what you're doing. Tell me, if you're at home on a weeknight with your wife and son, what are y'all cooking? Well, it depends. My wife very often wants to cook Ethiopian food based on a holiday, Ethiopian New Year's just passed, so that is a big, big, big celebration. She might, you know, it's a slow braised chicken dish that takes days to make, but that process of making it is also what's fun, right? Right. Because chopping the onions, talking to her sisters, or all of that stuff. If it's just a regular weeknight with no holiday celebration, it's a lot of vegetarian food. You know, one thing that the pandemic taught me was that There was about an hour to get into the stores, and then once you were in the store, there was another hour to get to the meat or the the fish side of the store. So we started to cut out a lot of meat. We cooked mostly vegetarian for a long time. It was really out of necessity because it was just not that much meat and fish around. So it could be something with farro and and some roasted corn now. It's still, still good corn coming to the end of that. Lots of tomatoes, lots of cucumbers, lots of fresh herbs. And it could be a piece of seared fish, you know, if we have access to a great snapper or so on. So trying to do something that is simple and trying to get my four-year-old son to get anything in his stomach, anything. 
He looks like he is a lot of fun. Y'all have a lot of fun together. I follow you on Instagram and I uh, see you guys spend a lot of time together and it seems like he keeps you pretty busy. Listen, you mentioned the holiday chef. What dish has to be on your holiday table for it to feel complete? Like it wouldn't be Christmas or it wouldn't be New Year's or Thanksgiving without. So we have turkey as sweets, but our turkey was on Christmas because Thanksgiving is just not something that I grew up with. So I love Thanksgiving. It's my favorite holiday. Everybody get together. So now when I roast my turkey and I do it the way my grandmother taught me, I do it on Thanksgiving, but I always think about it as a Christmas item because that was the time that we had that. And obviously the second day and the third day meal is even better whether you do a soup, uh, turkey soup with all those great leftovers. leftovers and maybe if you can get a sandwich in on the third day. It's also a transformation of being a Swede and becoming American. As immigrants, we take so much pride in coming to this new country. Mm-hmm. And like Thanksgiving is the time like, I am an American. Right, because you know? it's such a traditional American holiday. Okay, walk me through how you roast that turkey. This is something I need to know. Yeah, so I actually love if if you want a juicy turkey, I like to brine it maybe a day or two before, then pass it dry. And then actually I cut it in half and spatchcock it like this. Spatchcock it, yeah. yeah. Because with the breast meat can get so dry. So the only way it can actually get evenly cooked at the same time and done at the same time is if you spatchcock it. I start with around 300 degrees in the oven. And then the last half an hour, I turn my oven up to about 425. Even deglaze it with all of that turkey fat that comes out. Then I add a little bit of maple syrup in the last 15 minutes so you get that super crispy skin and it's super delicious. Ooh, it sounds good now. Always juicy. That's a trick I haven't heard about the maple syrup. Yeah. So tell me real quick, just so. Yeah, I mean, you have this obviously. You baste it with a baste with it, maple syrup. But you got to be patient. You got to do it to the very end because if you do it too early, it's going to burn. So you, you want to take some good butter, take some of that turkey fat, all that beautiful stuff that comes out, mix it, butter maple syrup, maybe even some soy, to get that perfect color on it. And that's your last 15 to 20 minutes. And that's how you get it crispy. I'm doing that this year for something different. Now, for those of you who don't know, to spatchcock a turkey, you just take the backbone out. You use your a yeah. knife or kitchen shears or whatever. Mm-hmm. Super sharp. Don't try to use something yeah. dull. You'll be in the emergency room on Thanksgiving. <laughs> but to spatchcock the turkey, you're saying it promotes an even cooking and you don't have yes. to overcook the breast to get the rest of the joint meat more done. Exactly. And you can get a small guy, you can get an eight to nine pounder turkey. And if you want that moment of a big whole roasted turkey on the table, if you really want to do that, so roast a smaller guy, put it on the table. But what the one that everybody's going to eat off should be the spatchcock one. That's a great idea. And then you can use the one that's overdone. You can use that for your soup or yes. your leftovers or whatever. And I know, do. very important to you, you can still get that Instagram moment. So you can still be with the kids and show that this is what the hipsters are doing. So you can still <laughs> get that moment in. All right. Thank you, Chef. <laughs> Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. And I'm going to take you up on that. Muscle Shoals, that's next. That's Chef Marcus Samuelson. His new book is called The Rise, Black Cooks and the Soul of American Food. It's filled with wonderful stories, food history, and recipes from generations of African-American cooks, a backbone of America's culinary traditions. 
You can find many of Chef's recipes on his website, MarcusSamuelson.com. Samuelson is spelled with two S's, S-A-M-U-E-L-S-S-O-N. Wait a minute, that's three S's. You can also keep up with his adventures on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter, at Marcus Cooks. If you haven't already, please subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss it. And don't forget, you can find thousands of recipes, meal ideas, and cooking how-tos from the world's largest community of cooks at allrecipes.com. You can also find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. This podcast was recorded in Birmingham, edited in Atlanta, and can be found wherever you get your podcasts. Homemade is produced by All Recipes with executive editor Jason Burnett. Thanks to our Pod People production team, Rachel King, Eliza Lambert, Tanya Ott, and Maya Croft. Thanks for listening. I'm Marty Duncan, and this is Homemade.